Um, so, summer's almost over. Uh, there's a mixture of happiness and sadness at that. Um, over this summer, I managed to uh, spend a lot of time on the beach, uh, which is something I love to do. Uh, but I've learned that there's one very important thing that I need to take along with me every time I go to the beach if I want to have a good time. And that's shade. Uh, so yeah, some cool drinks are nice, and a good book is nice, and a little folding chair is nice, and maybe a spade for building a sandcastle. Uh, but I can do without those things for a good couple of hours and still have a good time. But I can't go ten minutes without shade. Uh, so this English skin is just never ready for the Florida sun. Uh, so take a look at me now. This is as dark as I ever get. Uh, this is after three months of summer sun. Um, but if you put me under a cloudy sky for a week, I'll go back to being white as paper. Um, and uh, even now, if you sat me outside in the sunshine for 20 minutes without sunscreen, I would turn bright red. Uh, so this English skin is just never ready for the Florida sun, uh, so I'm reluctant to even set foot on the beach without bringing along some shade. We have this nice big parasol that we can stick in the sand, and it casts a, a lot of shade, but it's liable to blow over when the strong breeze is coming off the ocean. So to hold it up straight, my beach parasol has three guy ropes attached to it, each with a long metal anchor at the end for sinking deep into the sand. And when all the anchors are sunk and all the ropes are stretched tight, then that parasol can pretty much stand up to anything the wind can throw at it. So my need for shade is satisfied, and I'm ready to enjoy hours of happy beach bumps. <laughs> So this morning, I want to use that parasol as a metaphor for life as we all head off into this new academic year. What's the one most important thing to bring along with us in order to have a happy and successful year? What's the one most important thing? And uh, you might not agree with me about the beach. Shade might not be your number one take-along. Uh, it might be snacks, or your favorite chair, or a bucket for collecting shells, or a fishing rod, or a surfboard, or whatever it is for you. But when it comes to life, I think the most important take-along is the same thing for all of us, and that is a worshipful heart. A worshipful heart. That's what we all need to bring with us for life. A heart that consistently looks to God with thanks and praise. Because think about it, we're designed to be worshippers. And how we're doing at that primary job determines how well everything else goes. So if we can bring a worshipful heart along to each day we face this year, then we will have a good year. A happy and joyful year, whatever sorrows and trials may come. And a sense of purpose and success, however frustrating our work may be. But without a worshipful heart, nothing else is really going to go well. And that's why I say that the most important thing to bring along with you when you leave home each day in the coming year is a worshipful heart. Bring along your hallelujah. But bringing it is only half the job. You also need to set it up properly. Because just like my parasol on the beach, you might have discovered how easily your hallelujah gets blown down. Right? Along comes a gust of wind, of stress, or anxiety, or noise and busyness, or suffering, 
or ambition or some other distraction, and it blows that thing right down, and you lose your hallelujah. So if that's the case, then what are the guy ropes and anchors that can hold it up and keep it steady and strong? That would be a good thing to know. And that's something Psalm 147 teaches us. So let's turn there now, Psalm 147, on page 525 of the Church Bibles. Psalm 147. It's one of the last five psalms in the Psalter. Uh, and you might have heard the last five psalms in the Psalter called the Hallelujah Psalms. Uh, they're called that because all five of them begin and end with the Hebrew words Hallelujah, or in English, Praise the Lord. So you'll see that in Psalms 145 through 150. The book of Psalms is like a fireworks show, and it ends with a grand finale, a cacophony of sound, and a sky full of colors. And the last psalm of all, Psalm 150, is just pure praise. Unrestrained, noisy praise. So these five hallelujah psalms are a good place to look for our hallelujah. And Psalm 147 in particular shows us where it's found and how to keep it strong. So it begins with, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. Yes, it is. Praise is a good thing. It feels good. It puts us in line with the purpose for which we were designed. It makes us happy, and God deserves it. So yes, praise is good all round. And the rest of the psalm gives us a foundation for our praise. The three guy ropes that hold up our hallelujah, and here they are. First, God's awesome design of the natural world. Second, God's care for his own people throughout history. And third, God's word, which he has sent out to the ends of the earth. And here in Psalm 147, those ideas aren't separated, but they're threads woven together. And we're going to look at them one at a time. So the first foundation for our praise, the first rope that holds up our hallelujah, is God's awesome design of the natural world. So verse 4 says that God has determined or counted the number of the stars, and he gives to all of them their names. Now I would say that was a pretty big achievement. Uh, all of humanity put together hasn't even managed to count all the stars yet. Uh, so our best guess is that there are about a billion trillion stars in the observable universe. Uh, and of those, we've managed to name about nine million of them, mostly with uh, ugly code names like Lighten 726-8A. <laughs> Beautiful name for a star. Um, nine million names is a lot of names to keep track of. It's a lot more than I can remember. Uh, but we're going to need quite a few more ugly code names if we're going to name all of the stars. Because so far, we've only named 0.0000000000009%. So quite a way to go. Um, but God made them all and knows exactly how many there are to an accuracy of one. And he has names for all of them, which he remembers without the help of the internet, and which I'm sure are all nice names. Um, 
Verse 5 says, Great is our Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. No doubt. Verse 8 brings our gaze down from the stars to the clouds. It says, He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. So God's greatness in the skies trickles down into elegance on the ground. The humble blade of grass is a marvel, isn't it? It's a little solar panel for converting sunlight into energy. And uh, in the summer, it grows at a rate of about a foot per week. Um, so think about it. When people make solar panels, they're rigid, ugly, temporary, and they need to be assembled in a dirty factory. When God makes solar panels, they're slender, graceful, beautiful, flexible, hardy against extreme weather, soft to walk on, free, abundant, self-reproducing, and edible. <laughs> At least if you're a cat. Uh, just add water. And then finally, in verse 16, the psalmist says, He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? Uh, so in Jerusalem, snow and ice are about as common as they are here in Tallahassee, i.e. not common at all. Uh, you might see them every few years, maybe. Uh, so perhaps that's why the psalmist found it amazing and drew special attention to winter weather. Maybe if he'd lived in Alaska, he might have chosen something else to marvel at. Uh, but my son Benjamin would definitely agree that winter weather is especially worthy of praise. So God has designed a spectacular world, and that's the first guy rope that holds up our hallelujah. But it doesn't work very well if we don't spend much time looking at God's world. Perhaps that's part of our problem. But this rope doesn't do very much for us because we spend our days living in a dreary, man-made environment that's almost entirely detached from God's marvels. So it's possible now to go a whole day without noticing any of God's works. We wake up in a man-made bed, in a man-made room, and eat our breakfast out of a cardboard container. We climb into our metal and glass car and drive to our metal and glass office, turning on the radio to listen to men and women talking about the actions and achievements of other men and women. We sit on a vinyl chair under a fluorescent light and tap plastic buttons until it's time to eat our plastic-wrapped factory-processed lunch, after which it's buttons and screens until the ride home, the gym, the store, the microwave dinner, the hour of TV, and off to bed to do it all again. And we've lived a day almost entirely isolated from the creative wonders of God. Perhaps we haven't even noticed the light from the sun or the fragrance on the breeze or the sounds made by the birds overhead. So, if your hallelujah is always being blown down, could it be because you rarely notice the works of God in the natural world? You can go a day, a week, or even a month without being amazed by something God made. That's a problem that's easy to fix. Get outside. <laughs> Work some outside time into your schedule and keep it there. It's really basic, but it's good for you, and it's good for your friendship with God. So how about making plans this year to meet up with a friend and take walks in the woods, work out in the yard, plant yourself a garden, and take your children outside to stargaze after dinner. Find ways every day that you can pay attention to the creative works of God. 
So just this past Friday, I got out my ladder to do some work on my shed. Uh, and when it came time to put the ladder away, a couple of hours later, I noticed that a little spider with bright orange markings had already started to build a web in my ladder. Um, so I decided the ladder didn't really need to go away. And I stopped to watch him for uh, about 20 minutes. And I'm not really sure I've ever watched the spider building a web before. Uh, he had his uh, 27 radial lines in place and his non-sticky crawl lines in rings spaced <laughs> at intervals out from the center. And he was filling in the sticky trap lines in a tight spiral, starting from the outside and working in. And he was remarkably fast and precise. He had the kind of practiced excellence that a person might attain in one thing if they worked only at that for many, many years. He was methodical and exact. Every new strand was set in place in less than a second at precisely the same spacing as all the strands before. And he would take an hour to build an engineering marvel of astounding beauty that would last less than a day, and he himself would live less than a year. So I didn't have to go far to watch him at work, just in my own backyard. But that little spider helped me to praise the Lord. So that's the first guy rope to hold up our hallelujah, God's awesome design of the natural world. Now the second is God's care for his own people throughout history. So if the works of God in the world are amazing, then isn't it even more amazing that he cares for tiny little people and their tiny little problems? I can't even name all the stars. Why should he care when my computer breaks down? But he does care, and he cares about every other tiny insignificant concern and problem that I bring to him. It's wonderful beyond words, but it's true. And in Psalm 147, God's care for his people is tightly woven together with his mighty power. So look at verse 2. It says that the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. So the psalmist had a historical event in mind when he wrote those words, and it was the return of the remnant of Israel to the Promised Land after their exile to Babylon. So God led his people back. And they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem and their temple and their lives. But if we look further back in history, why did God exile them to Babylon in the first place? It was because of their repeated idolatry and wickedness. He was entirely justified in exiling them. But nevertheless, God looked on them with compassion and had mercy on them. He gathered them and healed them and rebuilt their fallen city. And that's not just a one-time exception. No, God is like that all the time. Verse 6 describes a general pattern of behavior for God. It says, the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. God cares for the little guy. Even for the little guy. Especially for the little guy. And he goes to bat for him. And even more amazing, God cares for creatures even lowlier than we are. Verse 9 says, he gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens their cries. How wonderful is it that the God who knows all the names of a billion trillion stars also knows your name. That the one whose concern it is to keep the Milky Way spinning around 
the central black hole at just the right speed to preserve all life also concerns himself with you and with your problems. What are you to him? What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? And yet evidence of his care is all around us. It's here in this psalm and all through the history of Israel in the Old Testament and the history of the church in the New Testament and in the 2,000 years since. And it's abundantly evident now in all of our lives. Despite God's greatness and holiness and magnificence, God sees you and he cares for you. Okay, so maybe your life isn't going so well right now. Maybe there are some prayers that are taking a long time to be answered. And maybe you might be tempted to say in your heart, God doesn't see me. He doesn't care about me. But think about it. Is that really true? Could that be true? In your years walking with the Lord, has he really not communicated his care for you? In the way he's met you in prayer and through scripture and by his spirit? In the prayers he's answered and the gifts he's given you? In the ways he's healed you and made you strong and raised you up and through the people he's put in your life? Sure, we often see less of him than we might like or hope for, but is it still not enough for us to be sure? The psalmist is sure. And if you remain unconvinced, then I urge you to look through your history again. Because of what comes next in verses 10 and 11. It says, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So here, the strength of the horse and the legs of a man are images of battle. God does take pleasure in horses for their own sake and in legs because he made them well and they're good. But he took no pleasure in Israel trusting in the power of battle to solve their problems. When they took matters into their own hands and went to war to win their lands back, God took no pleasure in their trying to take what he was getting ready to give them. And the reason they did that is that they stopped believing that their God saw them and cared for them. So they lost hope in his steadfast love. And if we lose that hope, then we'll turn to battle horses too. Not literal horses, but we'll turn to something else that gives us some hope of getting what we need. We'll turn to our bank accounts or our wise investment strategies. Or to our performance at work and the respect of our colleagues. Or to our popularity and the number of our friends or our following on social media. Or to our pride in our own accomplishments. Or to our own good works. Or to a romantic relationship that makes us feel wanted and special. Or something else. There are so many different kinds of horses. And none of these things are evil in themselves any more than horses are evil. But they're lousy foundations for our hope. And so God's delight is not in the strength of the horse. Stay away from horses by keeping your hope in God alone and remembering your many reasons to hope in him. Hold up your hallelujah through the history of God's care for you. And that will mean looking back regularly to remember it. Begin at the cross where the Son of God shed his blood to save you. Then call to mind all the work that he's accomplished in your life. And read the stories of what he's done for other Christians too. 
Maybe make it your practice this year that every single day you're going to call to mind one way that God has shown his care for you or come to the rescue of one of his other children because that will hold up your hallelujah. That is the second gyro. So the first is God's awesome design of the natural world. Second is his care for his own people through history. And now third is God's own word, which he has sent out to the ends of the earth. In verse 15 of our psalm, God sends out his command to the natural world, and the natural world obeys him. And then in verse 19, God sends out his word to Jacob. Specifically, it says, God sent out his statutes and his rules. So in both cases, the kind of word that's in view in this psalm is God's commanding word. He commands the earth, and he commands his people. And the same language is used for both kinds of commands. When he speaks to the earth, he orders and organizes it. He trains it how to be wonderful. And the natural world obeys him. Little spiders learn from his command how to build immaculate webs. And when God speaks to his people, he orders and organizes us too. And he trains us how to be wonderful. The last line of our psalm is an exaltation in God's law. It says, he has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. In other words, we have his commandments and they don't. How lucky we are. How good it is to be commanded, to be instructed by this awesome God. What would we do without this light? And it is the gift God gives us that makes us great. Moses said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Observe the laws of God carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today. Isn't that astonishing? What an amazingly high view of the law. It's not restrictive. It's not dehumanizing. It doesn't rob us of life, freedom, creativity, and happiness. Instead, it makes people great. When we follow the commands of our God, we become as wonderful and as fascinating as that little spider building his web. And he was taught to live into his full potential by the word of God. So God's commands are not burdensome. Instead, they create us. They bring sanity to our minds and peace to our hearts. And they hold up our hallelujah. So the third thing we need to do to protect the worship of our hearts is to listen daily to God's word. And in particular, his word that commands. The part where he tells us what to do. So perhaps those are naturally our least favorite parts of God's word. We enjoy the history and the poems and the promises and the part where we're forgiven at the cross of Jesus and saved by his grace. But when it comes to the word of God telling us what to do now, we're inclined to hurry over that part. So this year, what if we pay particular attention to God's commanding word, to the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, and to the Sermon on the Mount and the back half of Paul's letters in the New Testament, studying carefully how God wants us to live and pushing forward 
with the parts that we find hard. Perhaps if there's a particular part you find difficult to obey, like maybe God's command to forgive our enemies, or to devote ourselves to prayer, or to be generous to the poor, or to live in sexual purity, or to practice hospitality, or whatever you discover as a sticking point for you, make that a daily prayer focus for a while. That God would teach you how to obey what he commands, how to love and embrace this command. Even if his command seems strange or unnatural or worthless to you, trust that God knows what he's talking about. And he's teaching you how to live, how to flourish, how to be amazing, how to be great. That's what his commands do, both in the natural world and in the human world. And we slowly learn that for ourselves, when we put his commands into practice, then we sing with the psalmist. I have been given his rules when others have not. Praise the Lord. The commanding word of God is the third gyro to hold up our hallelujah. So it's the start of a new school year in Tallahassee. And what I want for all of you this year is that you, your year be happy and successful, full of the life God wants to give you and flourishing in every way. I believe, for that to be the case, the single most important thing for you to carry with you every day is a worshipful heart. A heart that's full of songs of praise to our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your own hallelujah. And in order to hold up your hallelujah and keep it strong and sturdy against the winds that will batter it every day, you need to secure it with these three gyros. First, God's awesome design of the natural world. Don't let a day go by without noticing something amazing that God has made. Second, in God's care for his own people throughout history, don't allow yourself to forget that he sees you and cares for you, that he died for you. Keep deliberately reminding yourself. And don't let your hope rest on anything other than his saving love. And third, in God's commanding word. He instructs you every day by his scripture and by his spirit. So practice doing what he says and learning to be great.